There's a Uversion Bible app event for this. You open the Uversion Bible app, you click on a little menu, click on an event near you. Kermansville Christian Church comes up. This is Kermansville Alliance Church. You want this one, and you want the, the image that looks like the one on the screen here. If you want to use a regular old Bible, turn to Matthew chapter 6, verses 14 and 15. That's where we'll be, Matthew chapter 6, verses 14 and 15. Okay, Bible app event. So, grudge holding. You know, let's take off the Christian masks for a little while. Let's just think for a little while. You kind of have to admire people that really know how to hold a grudge. (laughs) You know what I'm talking about? I mean, just think for a minute about the character qualities required to hold a grudge and hold it well. Let me give you a couple of them. First off, grudge holders have to convince themselves that they're absolutely right and that the offender is absolutely wrong. Absolutely. We're not talking 98%. We're not talking 99%. He was wrong. I was right. I was good. He was evil. (laughs) I was perfectly innocent and justified. He was perfectly guilty and unjust. I was Jesus and he was Judas. That's kind of the mentality for a good grudge holder. And they work hard to protect that mindset. They don't allow themselves to see things from any perspective except that one. Because they know that if they weaken, they'll lose the hold on their grudge. And they don't allow any doubt to enter their mind or any understanding of the other person to enter their mind or any kind of balanced thinking to enter their mind. And my friends, that takes discipline. Huge self-discipline. So my hat is off to grudge holders. They're a disciplined lot. More than that, Grudge holding requires a level of focusing of your energy, directing your energy in a particular way and place, namely to the injustice you've experienced. In fact, the best grudge holders there are are meticulous in this. They don't alter their attention, looking at others and seeing how they could be a help to someone. Their energy is occupied with their grudge. They don't invest their energy in having healthy relationships in their family or healthy relationships in a church or healthy marriages or healthy relationships at work. They are busy working on the grudge. They have to have their energy there. And they don't focus on enjoying life. They are focused on holding on to that grudge. And that takes a level of energy and discipline and focus that is absolutely amazing. Grudge holders have great discipline. They have great focus of their energy. And third, seasoned grudge holders have taught themselves to be immune to these three words. Let it go. Ha! No, the very suggestion that they should forgive, they can see that coming a mile away, and they can sidestep that like an all-pro running back. And there's no way, there's no way they're going to buy into that fake news. (laughs) Forgiveness? Benefits me more than the person I'm angry with? No, that is just not true. Wait, you're telling me that maintaining this grudge is more harmful to me than the other person? I don't think so. I think it's more harmful to them. Even if they don't know that I'm angry with them, I think it's more harmful to them. And that takes a level of stubbornness that probably the only person you know that has that level of stubbornness is me, right? Yeah, grudge holders. You got to admire them, right? No? You don't admire them. Neither do I. No one does. I want to talk to you today about grudge holding. Or better, I want to talk to you about the air we breathe. And that is letting go of grudges. 
forgiveness. We're going to look at Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. We're going to look at two verses, two sentences that he says in that sermon. But before we read those, let me give you a little context. Let me help you remember. The Sermon on the Mount began with the Beatitudes, which is like foundational. This is what kingdom people look like. Blessed are the, blessed are the, blessed are the. And then he went on and he talked a while until Jesus got to the place where he talked about, this is how you should pray. And there, there we have the Lord's Prayer. That's where we get that. And in the midst of the Lord's Prayer, he, he says this sentence, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Forgive us our debts, another translation says, as we forgive our debtors. And then when he concludes that prayer with the amen, he says the words we see in verses 14 and 15. Read those with me. He says, for if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others in their sins, your father will not forgive your sins. Now, if you have been a student of God's word, you might read that that, those two verses, and you might say, wait a minute, is there a contradiction here? Is there a contradiction with what Jesus says and with the rest of the Bible? Because I can think of countless places in the Bible where it says that God forgives us not because we've forgiven others, not because we've given money, not because we've lived a good life. God forgives us because he's God and God is gracious. And his forgiveness comes as an act of his choice and his will to just lavish his goodness upon us. He doesn't hold any grudges. He forgives in mercy, not because we've done something good. I know of a pastor. I know him personally. I'm going to call him Pastor McMobley, okay? That's my favorite fake last name because I like how it sounds. Say it out loud, McMobley. Don't you wish that was your last name? So Pastor McMobley once preached on this text, these two verses that we just read. And he said this sentence. He said, if you have not forgiven every person for every little thing they have ever done for you, if you're holding the slightest grudge, you will not go to heaven. Because that's what Jesus says. Really? Hmm. Well, if Pastor McMobley is right then what do we do with passages like Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, where it says, for it is by grace that you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. You see, if forgiving people won my place in heaven, then when I get to heaven, I could say, you know why I'm here? Because <laughs> I'm a good forgiver. I'm probably one of the best forgivers you know. I'm, I'm a good enough forgiver that God forgave me for everything I've ever done. Is that what Jesus is looking for from me? Is that what he wants, that kind of boastfulness? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. And if Pastor McMobley is right, then how do you take the words of Titus chapter 3, verse 5, where it says he saved us not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy? Forgiving others? That's a righteous thing to do. I mean, nobody admires grudge holders. As much as I tried to sell you on that at the start of this sermon, you knew that was just satire. We admire forgiveness. We look for forgiveness. We think of it as a righteous thing. But the text explicitly says, not because of righteous things we have done. Not because of those. 
Moreover, I have to ask myself this question. If I could get into heaven, gain God's forgiveness by being a good guy and forgiving everybody else, then what in the world did Jesus go to the cross for? What would Jesus have gone to the cross? I mean, I can get to heaven and I can sidestep Calvary. I don't even need Calvary because I'm such a good forgiver. Yeah. So how do we synthesize these verses? And the short answer that I'm going to put in long form is this. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is showing us how kingdom people behave. He is not answering the question, how do I get into the kingdom? He is not giving us a prescription. You know, a doctor gives you a prescription and he says, take this three times a day for the next four days, one, two, three, four days, and then you'll be well. Do this, I prescribe this for you, and when you get to the end, then you'll be good. You'll be good. That's a prescription. Jesus is not giving us a prescription saying, do this so that you can be in the kingdom. He's answering the question, here's what the kingdom looks like. What does the kingdom look like? And he's telling us what kingdom people look like. So Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount is not prescriptive, it is descriptive. This is because those who have encountered Christ, those who have humbly asked for forgiveness, have come to a point of transformation in their life and been made new people who know how to forgive because they have been forgiven. And forgiving others isn't what you do to get into the kingdom. It's how you behave because you're in the kingdom. That is not to say that kingdom people never struggle with forgiveness. That is not to say that kingdom people never have trouble with something done in the past that kind of comes up from time to time, never hold a grudge occasionally. But what it is to say is this. If holding grudges is something that I am known for, then maybe I need to check to see, have I ever really humbled myself before the throne of grace? Have I ever really, have I ever really humbled myself before Christ and become part of the kingdom? Because more and more, it's becoming evident to me that godly living isn't something we do because God twists our arm, but rather living in the kingdom, living a kingdom life, is something you do because you have, forget, you have experienced God's love. Let me say that sentence again because it's one of the best sentences I'll say today. Living a kingdom life is something you do because you have experienced God's love. Kingdom people, they are like those mentioned in the Beatitudes. They are aware of their need for righteousness. That's why they're poor in spirit. They're not arrogant. That's why they're meek. They're aware of their need for forgiveness. They're people who've been broken. And so when you and I come to Christ broken because of our sin, we find his forgiveness. It's freely offered. It's not deserved. It's given by grace. Forgiveness isn't something you get God to do for you. Forgiveness. Releasing your grudges is a natural outcome of realizing you are entirely dependent on God's grace. And forgiveness is the air we breathe in the kingdom. I'm going to say that sentence a lot. Forgiveness is the air we breathe in the kingdom. God offers us forgiveness for our trespasses, and we breathe that into our lungs, forgiven. And then we offer forgiveness to others, to those who trespass against us when we breathe out the forgiveness that we have breathed in from God. Forgiveness is the air we breathe. It is the air we breathe every day. 
And forgiveness plays a vital role in the kingdom. In fact, just as you cannot live in a world, you can't have any living creatures in a world unless there's air for them to breathe, there is no kingdom unless there is forgiveness. We would suffocate without forgiveness, grasping for something that we cannot find. We would not be here. We would not be here at 725 Susquehanna Avenue without forgiveness. Did you hear that last sentence? We would not be here without forgiveness. Think about it for a moment. Genesis chapter 2, Adam and Eve, they're placed in this beautiful garden of Eden. And God says to them in verse 16, you're free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of that tree, you will certainly die. When you eat the fruit of that tree, you will die. I can remember when I was a kid, I was puzzling over why God didn't kill them then and there when they ate that fruit. When you eat the fruit, you're going to die. They ate the fruit. Why didn't they die? And the answer is mercy, grace, forgiveness. God wanted to have mercy. He chose to show grace. And he arranged to give them forgiveness. And without forgiveness, that forgiveness, you and I never would have been born. Think about it. Your great, 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 greatest grandma and grandpa, Adam and Eve, they would have been killed right there. Their bodies would still be laying under that tree. They never would have made it out from beneath the fig tree, except for forgiveness. It is the air we breathe. And personally speaking, forgiveness actually releases your heart from bondage. Holding a grudge, that's holding your own heart in oppression. It's like stepping, standing on your own heart when you're holding a grudge. But forgiveness, how does the adage go? (laughs) Forgiving someone is releasing a captive and finding out it was you that was captive. Because of this air we breathe, forgiveness, we are not held in bondage. We are free. The Bible doesn't call us a kingdom of slaves. It doesn't call us a kingdom of serfs. And even though we serve God in a kingdom, we're not a kingdom of servants. The Bible, when it speaks of who we are, in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, says that we're a chosen people. We're a royal priesthood, a holy nation. We are God's special possession, that we may declare the praises of him who called us out of darkness into his wonderful light. Forgiveness lets the people of God, the kingdom people, live freely within the kingdom. Forgiveness is the air we breathe. And forgiveness, it lets us display the king, the person of Christ who is in our heart. It lets us make him visible to everyone else. We always marvel at great acts of forgiveness. Do you remember I told you a few weeks ago about those, the, the man who went in and did the unspeakable in an Amish school and how the, the Amish people helped pay for that funeral and they, they went in and they forgave him. They forgave anyone. We marvel at that, right? Or Corey Tenboom, who was in a Nazi prison camp, when she was face to face with one of her tormentors in a in a prison camp where her sister died. Years later, she's speaking, and this man comes up and says, Fraulein, you spoke of how God forgives our sins and are separated us to the bottom of the sea. I was in that camp. She didn't she remembered him. He didn't remember her. I was in that camp. And I since have become a Christian. Will you forgive me? Oh, 
Before you say, well, of course I would forgive him. I need to do that. I'm a kingdom person, right? Think of what Corey says. She says, how could I shake that hand? I couldn't. Until I said, God, you must help me. I will raise my hand, but I, I need the love from you to forgive him. And she said it was an electrical current that came down over her. She raised her hand. And as she shook that tormentor's hand, who he himself, a child of God, redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ, was asking her for forgiveness. She shook her hand and said, Oh, brother, I forgive you. I forgive you with all my heart. That is not natural. That is not the way of the kingdom of the world. That is only the way of the kingdom of heaven. Only the way of the kingdom of heaven. Alexander Pope, 300 years ago, said it like this. Listen, see if you've heard this. To err is human, to forgive is what? Divine. Yeah, to make a mistake, to make an offense, to do something wrong, that's human. To forgive an offense, that's godly. Forgiveness. It's the work of God. You want to impress your girlfriend with godlike, godlike power. Hey, sweetheart, I have godlike power. Wow, she can see my wife's face. You want to impress your wife or your girlfriend with godlike power? Forgive someone. Forgive someone. Because that is godlike to do that. By the way, it probably won't work with your girlfriend because she knows your motives, right? <laughs> but that kind of forgiveness, that is the kind of forgiveness that Jesus is speaking about. It's found in the air of the kingdom. It's in the air of the kingdom. And I want to say to you that when we breathe it in and breathe it out, we make, we make it visible. We make Christ visible. Because as long as the, the, the forgiveness is floating around like the air, I can't see the air. But when I forgive someone, I am demonstrating who Jesus is. I am manifesting his love in a divine kind of way almost. Since it's the air we breathe in the kingdom, we probably should give some thought to how forgiveness works in the kingdom. How does forgiveness work in the kingdom? How do we avoid being grudge holders? One of the things that we need to think about straight up is that we're in a broken world. And kingdom people accept the reality that people are broken. All of humankind lives in a world of evil, a world of pain and suffering and hurt. And generally speaking, hurting people hurt people. (laughs) If someone has injured you, there is a good chance that they were injured long before that. And they're just kind of passing it down the line. Listen, (laughs) That doesn't excuse it, right? But it's important that you're aware of that and accept that reality. I recently heard a friend of mine talk about growing up. And he said something like this. He said, I grew up in a home where the violence of my father would have sent him to jail. I mean, if school teachers looked at kids like they look at them today, if doctors looked at kids like they look at kids today, my dad would have been in jail more than he would have been at home. He was violent, physically violent with me until I was old enough to fight back. And I bear the scars of that. When that kind of thing happens to a person, it's not just physical scars. In fact, that kind of pain, even smaller pain than that, grief 
that kind of horror, even smaller horrors than that, can shape people. It can shape you. And often it does so in ways that we would never want to be shaped. But here we are. Here we are. We were the victims of that. It's part of living in a broken world. And in a kingdom, forgiveness works when we see one another as broken people and choose to love one another from there. Choose to love someone in their brokenness. If you demand that this world be something that is is not, if you demand that this world be a world where people are basically good, wow, people are basically good, I demand that they be basically good, you're really going to struggle when they're basically bad. You're going to struggle to forgive. And if we expect something of humankind that humankind simply does not possess, we will not be marked by forgiveness, but we will be marked by anger, bitterness. We will become excellent grudge holders. We will suffer and suffocate because we set aside the air of forgiveness that we need. Humankind, we cause God consternation. (laughs) that's just a nice way to say we really make God mad sometimes. In Matthew 19, Jesus is confronted with the unbelief of his disciples and it makes him mad because he's talking about a boy that they should have been able to help, but they didn't trust him deeply enough. They didn't believe well enough and the boy still is in need of help. And Jesus, it's almost as though he throws up his hand. He says words that are really, if I'm one of those disciples, I'm going to feel like garbage after this. He says, you unbelieving, and perverse generation. How long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Yeah, yeah. You're a broken race, humankind. But Jesus doesn't stop there. The very next words he says are, bring the boy here to me. You have to know, I believe with all my heart, that kind of consternation that Jesus has is because he so loved that boy and so wanted him to be well. And so wanted his disciples to be able to do this kind of ministry. And he doesn't say, you unbelieving generation, bring the boy to me and I'll do it. That's not the tone I hear at all. I hear, oh, you unbelieving generation, perverse generation. How long will I stay with you? How long will I put up with you? Bring the boy here to me. In his love, he cares for that boy. He accepts the reality that people aren't who we hope they would be, and he accepts, he accepts that we are broken and he works with us from there. Kingdom people accept the reality that people are fallen. By the way, kingdom people, they are not ones who deny their feelings. They admit it when they have pain. They admit it when they have heartache, disappointment, grief, loss. Jesus was honest about all these things in his life. I mean, when he's approaching Jerusalem, On his way in from the Mount of Olives, in Matthew 23, verse 37, he says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets, do you hear the lament, the disappointment in his voice? And stone those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather you, your children together, as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were not willing. He is lamenting the reality that his own people have rejected him. And he feels that pain. He admits he feels that pain. I mean, in, in the garden, he says, he says words that have always troubled me. You know, there are certain things Jesus says, like, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's such a troubling phrase, right? 
Here's one that has always troubled me. It's in Matthew 26, verse 38, when he says, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Listen, don't sugarcoat that. He's saying, I feel like dying. I feel like dying. Why? Because he's going to the cross. Why is he going to the cross? Because people are broken. Why is he, why is he feeling like he wants to die? Because he's honest about how he feels. Kingdom people don't deny the reality of their injury. And here's why. Here's why it's important not to deny the reality of your injury. Not so you can keep carrying that with you like you would carry a grudge, but rather you don't deny the reality of your issue, of your injury, because forgiveness is here. You breathe in the kingdom and you cannot forgive unless you're willing to admit the hurt. In soul care, Rob Reamer tells a story. I've been to soul care like four or five times probably, right? Tells his story every time. He tells the story of a woman who came into his office for counseling. She didn't have a babysitter. She brought her little girl. Little girl's there playing with dolls on the floor. Rob's talking to her about an incident that happened in her childhood that, that an, an older person did to her that one should never do, right? You know what I'm talking about, right? And, and so she, he, he, she's, she's saying, yeah, I'm, a, I'm okay with that. I'm over that. Well, have you, have you dealt with the seriousness of that offense? Well, you know, it's not that serious. It happens all the time. You don't hold anything against him? No, I don't. Nope, I'm okay. I'm good with that. That's all in the past. What she is doing is not feeling her feeling. And what Rob says to her, he looks at the little girl and he says, well, what if, and he called the guy by name, what if that gentleman that you just mentioned did it to her? And the woman stood up and said, I'd kill him. Really, you're not feeling the feeling. Glad to see that you feel the feeling. Because you can't forgive that person until you acknowledge the greatness of the offense. You have to do that between you and God. You have to do that with honesty. You have to do that clearly. And Jesus did that all the time because kingdom people feel their feelings. That's how forgiveness works in the kingdom. And kingdom people, they never let that injury define them. It's not that the injury wasn't significant. It's not that the pain isn't real. It's not that there's no scars there. It's not that the trespass had no impact. But kingdom people do not let that injury define them because they are defined by something greater. Scratch that. They are defined by someone greater. Someone greater. And that someone says in Ephesians 2.10 that you are God's workmanship. You are God's workmanship. He made you. You're His handiwork. Created in Christ Jesus to do good works. That's how He defines you. That's how he defines kingdom people. In John chapter 1, verse 12, he says, as many as received him, he gave power to become children of God. Children of God. That's how he defines you. That's how kingdom people are defined. Romans 8, 14, as many as who are led by the Spirit, they're the children of God. That is how God defines kingdom people. Evils, like bullying or like molestation or like insults or like name-calling, mean name-calling, to cruel mean-calling, name-calling, um, beatings, none of those things define kingdom people. None of them, not even a little. God alone gets to define his people. He bought you with his blood. He gets to say who you are. And he says who you are. That's how forgiveness works in a kingdom. And kingdom people choose to do no harm. They choose to do no harm. Jesus laid that out in the kingdom over and over again. I mean, right up to the cross, right when he's on his way, he's being arrested. 
And you know what Peter's doing? Peter's got a sword. Peter, lay down your sword. Lay, lay down your sword. Do no harm. I'm Peter. Jesus, you've got to be kidding. They're going to, what are you, what are you, these are your enemies. I'm forgiving them in advance. Lay down your sword. That dialogue didn't really happen. It's my sanctified imagination. Right? <laughs> Think of the Beatitudes. Think of the Beatitudes, and remember, that's foundational to the kingdom preaching in the Sermon on the Mount. Those who mourn, those who are meek, the merciful, the pure in heart, the peacemakers, the persecuted, those are the kingdom people. It is really hard to imagine those people living lives that are bent on harming others, isn't it? (laughs) Yeah. Kingdom people are not vengeful, they're not violent, they're not vindictive. Kingdom people choose to do no harm. And that's how forgiveness works in the kingdom. And kingdom people, they give their grievances to God. You see it in the Old Testament, you see it quoted in the New Testament. Romans chapter 12, verse 19, Don't take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to revenge, I will repay, says the Lord. See it in the Old Testament with David. You know, David had been anointed to be king over Israel. Samuel came and anointed him when he was a little boy. And, and he even, he killed Goliath, you know, and, and they were, the whole nation is kind of rallied behind him, but King Saul is not going to yield that position. King Saul says, I'm the king, you're not the king, David. And King Saul's hunting him down. And there's an occasion, and I love to imagine it in my mind, that Saul goes into a cave to take care of a private matter, uh, you know, the necessities of uh, human life. And while he's in the cave there, David, that's where David's hiding. That's where David's hiding. And, and it's dark. And Saul doesn't know he's there. And, and David doesn't kill him. I mean, he had a sword. <laughs> Saul's there to kill him. All he has to do is carry that head out. And you've got to know, everyone would say, you're the man, David. You're the king. You're the one. David refrained from killing his enemy, Saul, because... Kingdom people give their grievances to God. Touch not the Lord's anointed. He wasn't just acknowledging the anointing of of Saul. He was acknowledging the sovereignty of God. And Jesus even does it. Jesus is on the way to the cross, right? And and the book of 1 Peter says that when they hurled insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. I got to tell you what I would have been doing. You know, when they're spitting on me or whatever, I'd have been saying, your time's coming, buddy. Your time is coming. I I would have said, don't you know, I can call 10 legions of angels. In fact, I'm going to do it right now. You know, that that would have been a human way to respond. Kingdom people don't respond that way. Kingdom people give their grievances to God. Even if you're Jesus, God in the flesh, you entrust yourself to him who judges justly. Wow. That's how forgiveness works in the kingdom. That's why Jesus says what he says in Matthew 6. He's not writing a prescription, here's how to be forgiven. He knows the way to be forgiven is to trust that he died for you on the cross. He's writing a description. He's describing what you're like now that you've received grace. Unless you receive forgiveness, you can't enter the kingdom. And unless you give forgiveness, you can't breathe in the kingdom. You have to. Forgiveness is the air we breathe in the kingdom. And holding grudges, grudge rhymes with sludge, and you can't breathe either one of them. 
Just seeing if you're still awake. Holding grudges, really, think about it. It's not admirable. It's pathetic. It's shameful. It's enslaving. It is beneath the dignity of those who name the name of Christ to hold a grudge. And it's not the way of the kingdom. Let's release those grudges. Let's breathe in the forgiveness of God for our trespasses and let's breathe out the forgiveness of God for those who trespass against us. Live life as people in the kingdom. I want to pray that you can do that. If you're comfortable doing so, I'm going to ask you to stand. There's this thing about routine. There's this thing about habit, this thing about doing the same thing over and over again. I can remember one time I would walk in the door and I would, it was at the foot of the steps. There was a, um, like, a like a thing that this uh, offering place sitting on here, a little stand. And I can remember I'd go around that corner sometimes and I'd set down my keys on it, you know? It was a routine that I did. And it got moved. And I would walk around the corner and I'd set my keys on the floor, you know? Been a cell phone, that would have been a bad thing, but this is pre-cell phone days. That's how routine is. We just do the same thing. And that's what this time of the service can feel like to you. Oh yeah, this is the time when we pray. I wonder what Drew's going to have us sing here at the end of the service. I'm kind of interested in that. Let's do the prayer. Let's do it. Hey, we're going to get home in time. We can eat before the sealers are on. That's cool. So that's what happens to your mind, right? It just goes into the routine like cattle going into a stall to be milked. Don't, you're not cattle. Okay? I want you to think for a minute. You got grudges? Are you happy to have them? <laughs> it has been said for some people, if they let go of their anger and their bitterness and their vengefulness and their grudge, there's nothing less. It is not that way for those of us who are in the kingdom. When we let go of our grudges and our bitterness and our anger and our unforgiveness, it is as a load coming off of our back. It is like our lungs are finally cleared out so we can <sighs> breathe deep the heir of the kingdom. And we never, as heirs of the kingdom, have nothing less left. We always have him and his fullness. So whatever you're holding on to, kingdom people, would you let it go? Would you let it go today? I want to pray that you can do that. Lord Jesus, uh, forgiveness is hard for us because we are of this world. We are fallen people. And I would say that without you, <laughs> without your spirit dwelling in those of us who have turned from our sin and trusted Christ, who have seen our own inadequacy and cried out to you, save us, forgive us. For those of us who have been born again, <laughs> like little Zach, for those of us who are of the kingdom, that were it not for your presence in our life, any forgiveness we could give would be so small. But because of your presence in our life, we can deal with the injuries and we can forgive the injurer. We can make room for your wrath, not in a mean kind of way. Yeah, God will get you for that. Not that way. But in a way that entrusts ourselves to the one who judges justly. We give those people to you, God. We give our pain to you. We give our grievances to you. We trust you. We breathe in the forgiveness that comes through Christ. We breathe out this air of forgiveness 
to those who have trespassed against us. Thank you. Now and forevermore. In Christ's name, amen.